0: Good morning. Let's come to the word. And we're reading today from Acts seven, verses thirty seven to forty three. It's Acts seven, thirty-seven to forty-three. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know him. What has happened to him? That was, the time that, may, that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon and the stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring the sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Raven and the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This is God's word.
1: Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, and we pray today you open it to our hearts as you open up our hearts to what you have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that reading is from uh, the speech that Stephen makes before the Sanhedrin in the um, book of Acts there, um, and he refers back to this, this golden calf incident, one of the better-known incidents um, in Exodus and the Old Testament there. It's kind of the, the beginning, like the... the 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 seminal tragedy um, of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew people there, because it shows this beginning behavior to turn to idols, which they're going to wrestle with for like a thousand years. Um, They never quite get over this idolatry thing until they get back from Babylon after their exile much later on, and even then, only in so much. Um, And so that's where we are in our journey through the book of Exodus today. Uh, The good news is, uh, last week we were going through four chapters. This week we're going through just one, so we're more likely to be able to. We'll be able to actually go through the entire chapter. will go through it step by step and look at it. Um, the more challenging news is it's not a small chapter, um, and there's a lot to talk about in it. So we're going to jump into it. Um, I'm going to read out the whole chapter through my sermon, so I won't do a preliminary reading here. Um, but for the last few weeks we've been working through the second half of Exodus. Um, and that's the bit with out all the hailstones and the flying frogs and whatnot. Um, this is the part of Exodus where many attempts to read through the Bible cover to cover begin to lose traction and momentum, and they finally sort of peter out halfway through Leviticus. Next door, um, we've seen God speaking to Moses in these chapters. God's been giving him instructions on how to establish the worship of God in this young nation built on these freed slaves from Egypt. He gives Moses instructions on how to make the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the the golden art that's going to be so important for them later on, how to make the tent of meeting, um, the altar, the altar of incense, the clothes for the priest, the incense for the priest, the oil for the priest. God gives Moses a whole bunch of instructions on how to establish the worship of the God of Israel by making his priests and his people distinct, by instilling tradition, by commemorating, by offering sacrifice. Everything is going to be part of the Jewish religion that starts here. This is the thing that is, everything else is going to be built on. And Chapter 32 shows us, begins by showing us what's been happening at the bottom of the mountain while Moses is up top. Um, because remember, Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time to have walked up a mountain and vanished into a divine cloud. Um, we don't know what Moses experienced during most of that time, other than the stuff that's recorded in scripture here, but if you read at end to end, what what Moses is told to tell to the people from his time in that cloud. It would take maybe a couple of hours if you read slowly. He's up there for 40 days. What do they talk about? Who can tell? Um, But we can break up this chapter into four parts like so. The narrative cuts back to the people on the ground talking to Aaron sometime before Moses is finished at the top of the mountain. In our summary here, that's Verses 1 to 6. Then the focus shifts back up the mountain where God is talking to Moses. And he tells Moses that he's going to wipe Israel out for this sin. It's so grievous to him. It happens so freshly after they've established this covenant that God decides it's going to be better just to eradicate Israel, rebuild the nation through Moses, and kind of start again. Then Moses steps in. He intercedes for the people. Um, In the plain reading of the text, it comes off as if Moses is talking God out of this sort of rash overreaction, which is an interesting way for scripture to put this. And the third scene has Moses descend from the mountain and then himself kind of go nuts in reaction to this, um, perhaps justifiably nuts. He takes some pretty extreme measures to rally the people who are completely out of control. And then in the final six verses, Moses and God speak about the lasting punishment for this sin, what's going to happen as a result of it. Now, this is a much more familiar part of the Exodus story than the talk about the different threads and stuff used in the cloth the priests are going to wear. It's quite a ride, quite a gear change out of the last several chapters um, full of precise measurements and golden instruments. So let's go through it step by step, starting at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt... We don't know what has happened to him. Moses has been gone for weeks and weeks at this point. We're not told precisely at what point they're saying this, but he's obviously been gone long enough that they seem to be pretty sure he's not coming back. The Jews are standing there. They've got their piles of loot taken from Egypt, their gold, their wine, animals that could very easily be slaughtered and roasted for feasting because these are former slaves. They don't get a lot of feasts. Um, When was the last time they feasted, if ever? If ever. Probably not. Um, They get restless, they get worried, and they eventually decide that Moses isn't coming back from the mountaintop. Maybe like Enoch in their legendary ancestry, he's been carried off into heaven and they shouldn't expect to see him again. But they certainly don't know. And they do something which seems to us, retrospectively, very dumb. But they must have thought it made sense to them at the very least. They ask Aaron to make them gods, or a god, who will go before them. Now, how do you go from seeing God's miracles in their absolutely most dramatic, frog-reigning, sea-parting power, um, and then go shopping for new gods a few weeks later? It's hard to imagine, but that's the situation we've been given here. And readers have struggled with that question for many years, and they usually conclude one of two things. Either this golden calf that's made here is meant to represent the actual true and living God, the one who led them out of Egypt, um, and their sin was trying to depict him in an idol. They shouldn't have tried to capture his image in this golden calf, and that's what uh, vexed God so much there. Or alternatively, it's an incredibly dumb thing to do, but it just shows how corrupt and fallen humans are. It's the most majestic and like, fabulous miracles that God does visually in the Bible, and then the most fantastic failure immediately after it by humans. Kind of a side-by-side God at his best, humanity, at their least impressive. I'm gonna give you a bit of a third option a little bit later. But for now, Aaron, we've got, um, Aaron who's just learned, we've just learned that Aaron is going to be the high priest, right, he's gonna be the leader of God's priests in Israel and he yields to the demand that the people are giving to him here in verses two to four. Aaron answered them saying, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings And they brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made into an idol idol cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So Aaron makes them an idol to worship. You get the impression that Aaron is hesitant. He's maybe trying to stall and minimize this effort. He doesn't completely buy into this need to make an idol. I mean, they come to him and he like, seems to capitulate because he's got thousands and thousands of people demanding this from him. Um, but he makes a calf. And this is not a random animal choice either. For your sort of ancient Near Eastern countries and their various uh, pantheons of, of gods, it's, it's reasonably common for them to have oxen and cattle and for that matter, to depict their gods riding on oxen and cattle and on calves. And so the God of Israel, in fact Yahweh, our God himself, appears in scripture sometimes riding on the cherubim, right, this kind of uh, beast type angel which has among other things an ox's head. So I think there's a credible idea that this is Aaron trying to maybe make what he'd consider maybe an empty seat for God and then it's like I'll make you an idol but it's not actually God and we know that God's riding above this somewhere. But as soon as he makes it, the people go up. Oh, these are the gods who led us out of Egypt. So that goes pretty badly, pretty quickly. The next two verses, Aaron starts going into damage control mode here. Um, Aaron says in verse 5 and 6, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Not the calf. <laughs> So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. They're doing the kinds of offerings that God requires before this calf. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and then drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And this is interesting because Aaron appears like he's trying to steer this anxious mob away from their instinct to be idolatrous back to worshipping the true God. He's trying to be a priest. He makes an altar. He guides them through appropriate sacrifices, the burnt and the fellowship offerings. Um, He makes the the festival explicitly about the Lord, about the actual God of Israel. And then the feasting starts and the drinking starts and the drunken revelry starts. And these verses don't say specifically what the revelry entails, but I will leave that to your sanctified imaginations. Um, It probably isn't square dancing. And it definitely is not becoming of God's people. Aaron totally loses control of these rowdy thousands. And that's the end of scene one. Now, as per our question, let's try to illuminate a little bit more about this new God, about this calf, um, and why they made this calf. Because the Israelites have just come out of Egypt. So they've experienced Egyptian culture, at least, as the thing to idolize or aspire to, that their masters have been... um, Engaging in for generations and generations. And who was the god of the Egyptians? Well, they have a bunch of gods, but most distinctly, Pharaoh is worshipped as a god on earth in that Egyptian culture. The Egyptians had this idea there were a bunch of gods in the heavens, and Pharaoh was on earth both a god and a man in some sense. Not a bad concept. Egypt kind of jumped the gun on that one. Um, but the idea that their human leader had godly power and was himself a god was one they held. And the Israelites have just said, make us gods who will go before us because Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, is gone. That's a weird thing to say. You'd expect, uh, give us a new leader because our leader Moses is gone or give us new gods because our God, Yahweh, has, has left us. But they've sheltered in the power of Moses' miraculous power for a long time and Moses' gift from gods. And it appears now that he's gone, they are looking for a replacement for Moses. Aaron doesn't want to forsake God or Moses, so he tries to split the difference between idolatry and genuine worship. He makes a calf that sort of represents maybe a partner to God and a festival that is supposed to worship God despite the fact that that calf is there. The people say these gods, this calf and the Lord are the gods who led us out of Egypt. Aaron says, great, tomorrow we'll have a festival for the Lord. And so it's sort of close to being true worship from a certain perspective but as they say close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades god is not impressed uh and we'll talk more about why as we move through this chapter Ooh, I think it skips twice yes okay moses intercedes. seeds Next, in the next scene, we go back to the top of the mountain. So um, we've seen what happens while Moses is away at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, Now we see what's happening at the mountain top. And it's kind of sad because after 40 days of Moses basking in the intimate, personal presence of God and getting all of these commands about how beautiful and dignified the worship of God is going to be, God finally winds down this conversation and says, "'Go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt.'" They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. This is a pretty grave scene. God is threatening to destroy the nation of Israel that he has just rescued and raise it up again through Moses' descendants. The idolatrous revelry at the foot of the mountain is a blasphemy like the kind for which God has previously flooded the world and rebuilt the people through Noah. And I'll flag something now that we'll get into later. You'll notice that God seems to speak in an odd way here, like I mentioned before. It's all-knowing, all-seeing, future-seeing God. The same yesterday, today, and forever has just spent 40 days talking to Moses. Part of that discussion has been you're going to have a grand tent of meeting. You're going to have these specific guys make it. You'll have priests who will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There's some, these specific guys down there who are going to make all these ornaments and things. And then it's almost as if an angel comes in from off stage and whispers in God's ear and then he completely changes direction and says, you know what, actually forget all that. I'm going to kill all of these ungrateful degenerates and we will start again with a new nation. Congratulations, Moses has been promoted to Abraham, stand aside. Very obvious questions come up out of this. How can an all-knowing God change his mind? Uh, How can he be alarmed and made angry by a turn of events that appears to catch him off guard? Well, we'll talk about that later as well. For now, we'll read it the way it's written. On to verses 11 and 12. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he says... Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Whoa. There we go. Um, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel. Uh, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented or repented, depending on how you translate it, and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses steps in, he intercedes for the people, he reasons with God. He says, come on, if you kill everyone, they're going to think you rescued them just to kill them. That will make you look bad. God, in this narrative, seems to calm down and lets Moses try and deal with the problem himself instead. So now we have a picture of one who is God's chosen interceding on behalf of the sinful people to avert the wrath of God. And that picture is a clue as to why this scene plays out the way it does. But we'll see how Moses handles this rebellion if these slides don't run away from me. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the, the, the calf and the dancing. His anger burned and he threw his, the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf of the, of the people had made and burned it in the fire. He ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Moses encounters Joshua on his way down the mountain. Joshua has come part way up as a fellow representative of Israel, kind of escorting Moses to the mountaintop. It doesn't go as far in that to go into the cloud where Moses went. So Moses encounters him on the way down. They're heading down together. Joshua mistakes the sound coming from down the mountain for war moses gives this poetic reply it's not the sound of victory nor the sound of defeat but the sound of singing that i hear it implies how much better it would be if it was war if only they were fighting some attacker and winning or even fighting some attacker and losing that would be better than compromising the covenant with god that they have just made with this premature festival moses smashes the tablets of god's law now is it entirely because he's just so angry, sort of petulantly throws them away? I think he's making a point, because by doing this thing, the people have broken their covenant with God. Moses smashes the thing he is holding, which is made by God. He breaks the golden calf. He makes the people drink the water mingled with its ashes. It's a kind of an immediate psychological punishment, like the old, um, the old trick where the parent catches a child smoking a cigarette and makes them smoke the whole carton. Um, the picture here is Moses lashing out as fiercely as he can, but the chaos is really too big for him to contain. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. There's only so many people who can actually see or hear Moses doing all of this stuff. And that's why the people don't immediately become under control when he starts shouting and breaking things. And so he turns to Aaron, he's left in charge, and asks him, what on earth has happened? And Aaron's answer is evasive and childish. Do not be angry, my lord. Aaron answered. You know how prone to evil these people are. Uh, They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Ta-da! This is the language of evasion. This is... There was an accident, you know, the, the VCR broke, you know, um, it's, <laughs> VCR, okay, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> you know, this is that, that sort of passive disassociating myself from the actual incident kind of language. Um, and it's a lie, all right? It, the, the question has been asked, well, did it actually, did the calf supernaturally launch itself out? Was there demonic activity? Previous verse says that he made it with a tool. When Moses was writing this book, he says very specifically, Aaron made this. With his hands, with a tool, and then has um, Aaron say one scene later, just kind of happened. Aaron is Moses' brother, but he's also been with Moses as he's gained more confidence and miraculous power. And Aaron is terrified of Moses, and of the crowd, and of God. He's a reasonably sympathetic figure, sinful, as he is here. And he's kind of curling up now, trying to avoid blame. And Moses lets him off the hook for the moment and turns to the bigger problem. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so had become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And he said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart for the Lord to, um, to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Now, importantly, when Moses says, go throughout the camp, killing brother and friend and neighbor and son, uh, he is not calling for a massacre. He is telling the Levites who have answered faithfully this call, That they need to get the people under control and break up this profane celebration of a handmade God. Now, how do we know that's what he's calling for? Because only 3,000 people were killed, and there are hundreds of thousands of people in this group. 3,000 is about the right number of drunken fools picking fights with the guys with swords. That's a very small number, but it's not a very small number, but it's a relatively small number and it's exceptionally small exceptionally small compared to God's earlier stated intention of wiping out the entire people and starting again so these levites suppress this kind of riotous festival happening here at any cost that bloody night passes the revelry is broken up everyone sleeps off the disaster and the next morning Moses addresses them about the terrible cost of what they've done and then speaks to God again on their behalf. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, I will lead the people to the place, oh now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. So God speaks with Moses. Moses puts himself on the line. And says, if you don't want to forgive them, then I want out of this covenant. Blot me out of your book as well. Moses says, I didn't lead these people out of Egypt just to see them wiped out in the desert. Um, Moses has had success in bargaining with God earlier in this story. Restraining God from acting. This time God puts him back in his place. It's commendable that he has this self-sacrificial attitude. But God will choose how he punishes those who sin against him and when he does so. Now what kind of plague is it that God sends here? How many are killed? It doesn't say. We're not sure. But the Israelites, the message for them, in case they appeared to have missed it, is that God sends plagues on people who worship false gods. They should know this. He does this to show them that he alone is God. And the Israelites try to learn this lesson here way, way too late. And they will spend their history trying to learn it over and over again all the way up until their exile out of the promised land into Babylon so three questions spring up here it's a rich chapter there are more questions I recommend reading it in detail yourself asking a pastor to give you a head start maybe but today let's look at these three. First, what was the sin of the golden calf because in the passage as we read um, it's a little bit ambiguous as specifically what the problem there was. There's a lot of things it could be. And in Acts, we read at the start, um, it says that they rejected Moses and they turned back to Egypt. In Nehemiah, it says they rejected God and they appointed a leader to take them back to slavery. There's some wiggle room to argue about whether the worst part is that they tried to capture the divine essence in a physical form, but that's not very strong since God's up there on the mountaintop instructing Moses how they're going to make a whole bunch of golden physical impressive stuff some of it golden statues representing the divine and they can say that uh, you can say that they rejected God directly but that seems almost almost inconceivable that they would completely forget all the divine proof they had just witnessed in their escape from Egypt but the course in one way or the other is that God was taking them somewhere. They were following God's chosen man for the task. They'd been freed from slavery. They'd been asked to wait quietly for instruction, and they couldn't do it. They looked back at Egypt. They decided they needed to make their worship of God more like what they were used to and what they were comfortable with, complete with golden gods to represent the divine. And if they weren't going to have their miracle work nearby, then they would have the next best thing. God wanted simple faithfulness to what he had asked from them and they warped the good thing they had by creating an idol for whatever reason they did that god is laying the foundation for his people here that's supposed to last thousands of years and that can only happen if they are faithfully following his commands and they don't they disobey and as long as they are looking anywhere other than their god for guidance and direction they will continue to fall and disobey and be misled and. Um, And be led astray and to incur God's wrath. And speaking of God's wrath, the passage shows God in a very human emotional kind of way. He's angry when the people sin, he's ready to throw it all away um, and start again. Moses seems to talk him out of it. How can we believe both that uh, God is perfect, that he knows all, he has a plan that can't be confounded, his will is always done? and also that he's capable of becoming irrationally uh, angry and then needs to be talked down by people. Well, you can't. Those two things can't live in the same basket side by side. So there must be something else here that makes this make sense. Now, we've talked about progressive revelation before. This is the idea that God reveals a little more of himself over time to additional generations. Each later generation of God's people, on average, knows him a little better than the one before. And he fills in the blanks in the meantime by what we call condescension. Not insulting condescension like adults treating adults like children. That's the way we usually see the term condescension today. But we call divine condescension. This is the infinite God reaching out to ancient people at a level they can understand him. And they can have a meaningful relationship with him. Because they can't know him at his fullest level. In Genesis, God comes down and dines with Abraham. Is this... The real, true, exposed presence of God? No, we have a reason to believe that would just kill Abraham outright. Um, Does God need to eat? No, of course he doesn't. But that's how you initiate fellowship in that culture, and so God participates in it. When Jesus dies on the cross and the, the gospel tells us the sky goes dark and there is an earthquake, is God surprised and enraged that his son was killed? No, it's part of the plan of redemption. It's something that's been set in stone since the foundation of the earth. It's why Jesus was born. But this display of paternal uh, fury communicated to the people a very basic truth that they could understand. They had killed the Son of God and they would need some kind of miracle if they were going to avoid punishment. And so God engages with Moses at a level he understands. He communicates to him and to everyone who will read Exodus How severely he opposes idolatry and how serious this sin is. And it provides a picture in scripture of a divine savior who intercedes, who stands between God's wrath and the people. Another shadow of Jesus in the Bible. Moses knew God face to face as a friend like no one ever has. But we have a more complete record of the way that God has revealed himself through history than Moses or those people do. So we take this anger and his mind changing in this scene, not as a sign that God is unstable, but that he loves his people so much that he will come to know them at the level where they can best know him, and then from there, lift them up to know him better. So what does this mean for us? Well, from the way that Moses and God interact, we can learn that we can be genuine with God. We can expect him to meet us in a way that we can understand him. We know a lot of theological facts. I love theology, I love history. I like talking about the attributes of God. He's omnipresent, he's omnipowerful. Seeing how superior he is to these silly false gods. But God doesn't demand that we come to know him by supreme knowledge of his divine capacities. Those are true facts about God, but you can't know him like that. You have to know him in some way like you know a human because that's how we know people which is why God became human our relationship with God is based in our relationship with Jesus the son who became flesh walked talked bled died every other part of the human experience and the bottom of the mountain Moses and thousands of Israelites were attempting to appease God in a religious capacity trying to appease the God who led them out of Egypt At the top of the mountain moses was getting the key to knowing god because he knew god like a human knows another like we're supposed to know jesus that's the first thing the second thing however is the main thrust of the chapter and to ignore that would be to completely um undersell god's word it's a warning about the danger of warping and changing the true nature of worship what we call idolatry because this is the first example of what the Israelites will be doing for a thousand years. They compromise their faith. God takes extreme measures here to preserve something close to a pure foundation because he wants there to be a law and a foundation for people to come back to for the rest of their history as they get further away from God and he brings them back. He's establishing here the thing to bring them back to. And it happens over and over. A couple of generations pass. Each generation waters down their religion a little more, adds another God or two, makes the tone about divine um, God's, uh, God's will all the way over to human desire. Before you know it, they're not really worshiping God at all anymore, and the Lord does what is painfully necessary to bring them back. That's the story of the Old Testament. Eventually, he exiles them to Babylon for this same sin. And the same thing can happen to a church, to God's church. We have a responsibility to preserve good Bible teaching, good full-throated worship. And these things are not just for us, but for the generations that come after us. Because the way that we worship God, the way that we regard our Savior, is the foundation on which the next generation of believers will build their worship. We don't worship idols. And the fact that we don't worship idols is a a well-worn message you've probably heard in churches before you know where that message kind of goes today's idols are not physical golden gods they are work status sex love attention approval self-righteousness intellect independence wealth adventure many others many other things that you can place between yourself and God and in that way ruin your relationship with him you may have been told these things many times you may have been told to watch how you relate to all of these things Don't let them become idols in your life that get between you and God. This is a true message. I would like to challenge you a little bit further on it. It's entirely possible that you have whichever your thing is under control and it is not an idol for you. You don't idolize travel. You're just passionate about it. You're secure in your faith. You're not driven by greed. You're just hard worker. You love God. You're blessed to be a blessing. You're doing this right. That's fine, that may be true, but the threat of idolatry extends further than just you. It's to those who learn how to worship God from seeing you. This was Aaron's sin, is that he compromised his faith in a way he didn't think would ruin it, and the people took that a mile further and completely fell from God. What might be a passion for you which lives happily beside your faith may be an idol for someone else, if they copy your faith without your experience with God the Israelites sinned because they came to Aaron their high priest the one from whom they were supposed to gain spiritual insight and wisdom and he compromised he decides "I'll make a meaningless calf that doesn't replace God and then we'll make all the sacrifices to the true God and that'll kind of be close enough Aaron knew that that was just a statue he'd made with his own hands. Not one fragment of his faith in God was put into that chunk of metal. But the people who saw their high priest validate that idol learned something else. So if you have control over your idols, what are you, as priests of God's people, in this priesthood of all believers, especially in relation to young and new believers, what are you validating in the eyes of those around you? What are you making an idol of for someone else? Because our God was born in flesh and crucified and raised up to draw closer to those people. God has closed the distance and it's our calling as his people to preach his gospel and to knock down the obstructions and obsessions and idols that lead people away from him. So let's pray. Father God, you're an amazing God and there is no other God like you. You led your ancient people out of slavery in Egypt and you led your people here today out of slavery to death. We worship you for how you've set us free and now as we go about our lives as your disciples and your priesthood, show us the way to draw people to you and never to obstruct the way to you. Show us true religion, Lord. Teach us how to be your disciples in a way that not only grows us, but makes the path clear for those behind us. If we cling too tightly to something that isn't of you, Lord, or if we're uh, we're too ready to embrace something new that isn't of you, Lord, let nothing we do keep even one person from knowing you. Convict us, Lord, and lead us in a life of pure worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. meant.